Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Soft Takes podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Joining me is our, my good friend and the founder of Soft Takes, Mr. Kevin Johnston. KJ, what's up? Not a whole lot. Just been watching a lot of soccer this weekend. Just relaxing. And, What'd uh, you catch- watch? What'd you watch? Um, a bunch of MLS as usual. Um, I haven't been able to catch an NASL match, but um, maybe I'll catch up and watch a replay of something. But you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to watch a league that you you're actively trying to kill. I get it. I mean, shill or kill, right? Shill or kill. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good tagline. Shill or kill. Uh, definitely in the kill section is our uh, other co-host, Mr. Aaron Gunyan. Aaron, what's going on, man? Just living life to the fullest. You know, it's it's Sunday evening. Just doing a little yard work. Still catch my breath. How are you guys doing? Oh, very good, especially because we have one of my absolute favorites uh, tonight as a guest. Uh, you guys have, if you've heard me on any podcast about any of this litigation stuff, I always tell you to follow the, this gentleman. He's an attorney. He does the best podcast related to NASL USL. Neil Morris, welcome to the Sock Takes Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nipun. Gentlemen, I appreciate you uh, having me on. You guys do great work. It's good to kind of jump into the romper room. Thank you. Uh, We are not going to try to compete with Neil's excellent podcast that you should all listen to, and we'll link to it in our show notes, uh, because they have done a very good job of underlying the details that that should be discussed. From our perspective at Sock Takes, we want to know the, the, the future of this. We want to know the overarching themes that are emerging from this. Based on that, I'm going to ask you a very straightforward question that maybe would show up at the end of a podcast, but we're going to start with it. Neil, what, is, what do you think is the likely outcome of this litigation? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right Let's start it. with that. Let's start oh, with thanks. that. <laughs> can, we, can we start again and decide to get wonky? I'd rather do that. <laughs> Coming in hot, Dr. Napoon. Yeah. Way to, way to do it, buddy. Look, I want to kill the league, all right? I want to kill the league. I want to get to how I can kill the league. Look, I'm, I'm going to take the cop out because it's the, the, the gospel truth. I don't know how this is going to turn out, and, and frankly, no one does. If you're asking me to handicap odds, oh, well, and before I get to that, I mean, you know, a, a week ago – you know, most of us who cover the league would have said, yeah, legal action is a possibility and there's people talking about it, but that's that's something that'll come as an absolute last resort once everything is exhausted and, you know, we're not talking about anything anytime soon. And then, you know, Monday and Tuesday, or Tuesday we they filed a lawsuit. So uh, things can happen quickly and, and unexpectedly even in this, this environment. Um, you know... You know, the most important thing to look for, and there's a lot of people who've said this, but I think it's, it bears repeating, is whether the NASL is successful in getting a preliminary injunction allowing them to continue at the Division II level. Uh, and, there, and there's all kinds of elements and barriers and, and, and that go into whether they will get that or not. But the reason why that's important is they clearly believe that maintaining Division two sanctioning uh, for next year is essential for the league to survive, uh, um, but probably because of interleague contractual issues. So, if they are unsuccessful in getting a preliminary injunction, then I don't know. I mean, this this lawsuit could continue, but I'm not I'm not sure if the league would, at least in any appreciable manner. 
if they are successful in getting a preliminary injunction, then it becomes a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting game because presumably some of that is based on keeping leagues who who won't play. I mean, sorry, keeping clubs who won't play at any level other than Division Two engaged, and part of it is to keep teams that, or clubs that may be standing ready to leave the league if it loses Division Two sanctioning from being able to do so at least without any kind of, of appreciable uh, pecuniary uh, outlay. So, I mean, that's where it all—that's that, the whole kit and caboodle, and you know, because the antitrust action itself uh and all of its facets uh as as professor steve mank said on my on my podcast last friday that you you kindly referenced i mean those things take years not months so you know that that whole the you know the the meat of this and frankly the most interesting part of the of the lawsuit for for legal folks is not something that would be resolved anytime soon And and it's an open question whether the nesl would even even survive as long as necessary to do that. So uh, the outcome pr- will rest in large part on that preliminary injunction, I think. Uh, but, but you know, we've, we've seen lawsuits of this sort dating back to the 1960s, and they all ultimately get s- settled somehow. Uh, or there is some technicality that lets the court get out of making a substantive ruling. So I mean, those, those have that heck. That's how most lawsuits end up being resolved. So mm-hmm. I mean, that that's those are the those are the kind of the two things I would look at as far as which way we go. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's certain threshold things that U.S. Soccer cannot concede as a part of this lawsuit, like the fact that they may not be able to regulate professional soccer. I mean, they can't concede that. So that, that's not going to be the basis for any settlement. I mean, it all it all comes down to the preliminary injunction. It all comes down to whether NESL has the staying power to not just may, continue as a, as a legal entity uh, sustaining this lawsuit, but also whether they, whether they have the, the staying power as far as the lawsuit itself. So I want to reiterate something you said there. Um, and I wonder, so obviously I, this is far from my area of knowledge, expertise. I don't really understand how American law works. So maybe other people picked up on this and, I, and I'm just the idiot. But I want to reiterate what Neil just said, that the USSF does not have the power to um, to basically make regulations about soccer. That, that's a very important thing that Neil has said, and I didn't know about until Neil literally typed it out for me in a message. So, Neil, can you explain the ramifications of that? Oof. Um, yeah, and I actually, in listening back to my own podcast, I actually helped clarify the issue for me. That's it, It's something that, that both Professor Bank and Steve Holderoy, my other guest on the podcast, uh, discussed. Here, Here's... As best as, as simply as I can explain it, um, U.S. soccer exists as a a as an in, a nonprofit entity, mainly as an offshoot of uh, the Amateur Athletic Act or Athletic Sport Act. Uh, also, as it was amended in the late 1970s, it is called the Stevens Act, which allows the U.S. Olympic Committee to operate as as a monopoly in this country for the purpose of regulating Olympic and international competitions. And under their auspices, you can create essentially sub-entities like USA Basketball and USA Hockey. And so, and U.S. Soccer is tasked under that umbrella with regulating amateur soccer in this country. Okay. 
So that's what that's part one. And no one contests that. At the same time, U.S. soccer has also, through private contractual right, regulates professional soccer under the auspices of FIFA. Because FIFA says our member associations regulate the national leagues. And so, you know, it's it's FIFA, it's US, it's CONCACAF, it's USSF, and then it's all the leagues that are sanctioned under that. So it's really two different strands. So U.S. soccer has has operated and deemed itself both entities, the regulator of amateur soccer and a non-private private industry which regulates professional soccer. And it's that second part that is at issue, whether they have that actual legal right. There have been lawsuits that challenge that assertion that essentially back in the 1960s were settled short of an ultimate resolution. Many legal scholars are skeptical. And in one of those lawsuits, they actually, I think, the Champions World case, which came later, uh, U.S. soccer actually got to the point of arguing why they believe the Stevens Act itself also allows them to regulate pro soccer. And the, and the court in that case was a little skeptical, but they never got to that that issue because the case ended up getting kicked out because of a technicality regarding arbitration or something. So, so, so the point is that if you know if this whole thing went to went to its fruition. It would be a decision of and so okay. So what's important about being able to operate a pro league under or operate under the Stevens Act is that the U.S. Olympic Committee and any of its sub entities are able to operate by law as a monopoly for the purpose of regulating amateur athletics under the law. If what U.S. Soccer has essentially said is that plus our FIFA contractual arrangement allows us to regulate pro soccer as, I mean, they haven't said this, but they are essentially saying it <laughs> as a monopoly, mm-hmm. uh, not subject to antitrust um, violations. And that's a pretty hefty road to, or, or claim to make. Uh, and, and if you want to know how far reach, I mean, not how far reach, but how, how, how huge that is. Imagine if USA basketball all of a sudden one day said, you know what, we have the right to regulate pro basketball. Well, they don't. I mean, it's 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 kind of ridiculous to even say that, but that's the analog that we have in, in American soccer. If the regulation of pro soccer is not covered by the Stevens Act, okay, and it is just a pro- private contractual arrangement with FIFA, that means USA, U.S. soccer cannot operate well if it is operate as a monopoly it's subject to antitrust attack which has to do with collusion and conspiracy with other legal entities for the for for suppressing anti-competitive activities that's what all that's all that other stuff that's in the complaint about their their arrangements with mls and everything that's why that all comes into play and that's why this issue is so important because it's it's not necessarily Necessarily, U.S. pro soccer, although that might be the net effect, because then they would be seen, they would have to, it would be a very fine line for them to do that, and, 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 but not do so in a way that violates antitrust, uh, that, that, that's not uh, illegal monopoly. I know that's very, I don't know if that's clear as mud or whatever. So let me, let me clarify this in the following way. Uh, again, I, I this other people might understand this. I just don't, so I apologize if it's kind of no, ridiculous. But 
But why is this not an issue for other countries, for example? So why is uh, the Federation in India allowed to uh, regulate soccer in India? Or are they actually not and are pretending to? I'm going to plead ignorance. I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect that the... I mean, the easy answer is that a I don't know all the all the other countries' laws, and b it may be that their laws allow that. I mean, it could mm. be just as simple as that. Um, again, that's where I'm going to plead ignorance. I don't know what each individual country's law may allow. Whether there's you know the FIFA is built into their. I mean, it's the same. You know, other other countries honor solidarity payments that are required by FIFA. U.S. Right. law. There's a dispute right now because arguably U.S. law does not. I mean, we don't know, but you know, there's there's that. I mean, U.S. law has always sort of acted as its own thing because of its, of its interesting treatment of business and monopolies. So uh, the, the simple answer to your question is I don't know, um, but it very well could be that, that the various countries uh, have their, their, their laws are built into a common. So what is the final question for me for now, and then I want the other guys to get a chance here. So what is really the role of USSF? If they don't have really have power to, to uh, regulate soccer, what exactly were they designed for? Was it just the amateur aspect of it that they, that they have control over technically? Well, but, well, let's just say they may have that power. I mean, they would... They would make that claim, and is that if they if the Stevens Act was read as to cover their ability to regulate professional soccer, well, then they can operate as a monopoly without being subject to antitrust attack. So I mean that's a big deal. Gotcha. But there that's a I mean, there's a lot of smart people who think that that's a really tough argument to make because of the slippery mm. slope. Um, so if they aren't if if they are if it is ever sort of defined that they are not. That the Stevens Act does not cover the regulation of professional league, then U.S. soccer's ability to regulate professional leagues—I mean, they could still try, but it, it becomes almost unworkable because any arrangement that they reach—I mean, like for instance, you know, sanctioning of leagues and or, or entering into television deals with one league and not another—I mean, that becomes totally. Almost, I mean, I won't say prima facie uh, monopolistic uh, or antitrust, but it, it's it's way down that road. I mean, it would almost there. I mean, I, I haven't quite thought it through. I guess they could still be a private actor on by, under the auspices of FIFA, but if they have if they reach any kind of business arrangements with with one league without without another. I can't imagine that the court wouldn't strike that down, and that include that's when you start getting into soccer united marketing. That's when you start getting into joint television deals. That's where you start getting into the you know the the sanctioning of individual players and and whether they would be blackballed if they signed with another league. All the all these constraints of trade or restraints of trade that 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 are referenced throughout not just the NASL complaint but in, in antitrust law. I don't know what U.S. soccer could really do uh, in collaboration with another league. I guess they could just sit there and be a gatekeeper, but that would be at most their function. But oh, well, and I, could, I should also say that they would still have the right, I think, to to supervise international competitions on an amateur level. 
uh, whether it's the Olympics or, or other such things. They would still have that role, which is not insignificant. But I think it would then just be like any other professional league in the country, whether it's football or basketball. Baseball is a little different because they still have – they've got an antitrust exemption that's anachronistic, but it's still there because Congress has never said they don't have it. Yeah. Um, but but every other league, there are uh, – you know, the, the leagues are subject to antitrust attack. So – I think that's where we would where we would be. KJ. Yeah, you mentioned on your pod and others have talked about how and we've kind of gotten to it a little bit so far today, but how ultimately the person or persons weighing cases like this or any future similar cases um, are kind of coming from the perspective. They're not necessarily soccer people, soccer heads. So. Um, as far as how MLS and the American system is more so similar to the NBA, the NFL, MLB, rather than like a global, um, you know, pyramid structure of pro rel. So my question is, how big of a factor is that, that fact that, you know, ultimately whoever is, um, you know, making the decision on the case is coming probably from a perspective of, oh, this is the norm, um, American sports here in America? Well, I mean, it depends on what aspect you're, you're talking about. Um, like I said, with the exception of baseball, I don't know that any other professional league has been found to have an antitrust exemption. Uh, it's just courts will usually find a way around those things. Uh and will, uh, or it's just so time-consuming and so expensive to, to make these challenges. They just usually aren't, aren't brought. You know, the, the slightly unique thing about MLS, and this has been litigated in the Frazier case, is that you know there was, the Frazier case essentially, and I'm going to I'm going to garble this explanation, but essentially, a group of players accused MLS of, of operating as an as, as monopoly or as a monopoly uh, as a conspiratorial monopoly and essentially I think, I think you're forgetting the main word cartel is the one that's used on Twitter well there's that too but essentially what the Fraser case said was that MLS in and of itself is not a monopoly because it's deemed to be a single entity in other words it's not seen as a confederation of independent actors like the NFL uh, or even boxing federations, or, or maybe even the NHL. It is it is deemed to be a single entity uh, for the purpose of corporation. And essentially it said that a single entity cannot conspire with itself. So MLS can pretty much do what it wants within its own rubric. Where it becomes complicated if this case is seen to its, again, to its logical end or possible logical end is that any arrangements that it then has with other business entities, whether it's for marketing sake or whether it's with U.S. soccer or whether it's for USL or whatever, that becomes subject to, to uh, possible antitrust issues, um, particularly if it's, if it's an unlawful restraint of trade. And if, if the anti-competitive nature of those acts outweighs any pro-competitive benefit. You know, I promised I wasn't going to get wonky, and I'm already way past. No, it. I I think this is perfectly fine. K KJ, did you have a follow up or any oh, other no, questions? Go ahead, Aaron. And I guess let me let me just say I guess the, yeah. the, I guess 
trying to sort of bring this back to, to where we are. I mean, what the NASL is saying is essentially if, if all of that comes to pass, then what's unlawful is everything. <laughs> that U.S. soccer right. can't create divisions that arbitrarily say that this league is inferior to another. Uh, MLS and U.S. soccer can't conspire to um, to, to erect barriers to trade and, and competition for the purpose of putting MLS in bubble wrap. Uh, it, it can't conspire. MLS and USL cannot conspire for a, a reserve treat a, a reserve league arrangement, affiliation arrangement, uh, because ultimately that is to the benefit of MLS which because of their financial ties to U.S. soccer is for the mutual benefit of both MLS and U.S. soccer. I mean, that's where it all goes. Um, and that's a lot. It's not an illogical argument. I'm not here to say that the NASL's arguments are, you know, if you read the complaint, it's it reads like a conspiratorial, you know, manifesto. But there's a legal basis to this stuff. I mean, it's, now I'm not saying it's valid or that it's going to carry the day, but it's not totally out from left field. So that's essentially what the NESL is saying that, hey, we need to be able to, we can, we can set up, a, here's the analog is, you know, when the, the American Basketball Association set up a rival league to the NBA or the World Hockey League or whatever it was set up a rival, that, that the, they should be able to do that. And that you don't have this sanctioning body that that not only regulates them, but, but also at the same time sets up barriers to ensure that they are seen as less than another uh, entity in that same industry. That's really what we're talking about. Now, it's a whole other question whether the NESL would have benefited from all of this. And that's another topic. Um, but that's essentially what they're saying is that we should be able to just compete like has happened like Heck, like when the USFL competed with the NFL. Yeah, they didn't get very much money when they ultimately sued the NFL. But, but I think, you know, there was an antitrust violation. They they are they have a right to compete, and you can't just have some overarching, you know, regulatory agency that says you're not as good as this other league. That's right. the issue. Aaron, do you want to come in with questions about kneeling for uh, national anthems? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, considering what we were just talking about. Yeah. First of all, long-time listener, obviously. I mean, <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Um, Sorry. Huge fan of Neil, by the way. He's He's been somebody that I've followed on lower division soccer for a long time. He's, not, he's not, kind of a not bucket. A big enough, not a big enough fan to get a proper mic for the podcast, though. Just turn that out there. I mean, <laughs> okay, so I still thought I had, like, another week until the, the podcast <laughs> that we were that we're on, so... I'm doing the best I can. Also, my internet's a little uh, finicky today, so deal with it. And uh, anyway, long-time listener, big fan of the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, NASL had filed a suit before against the USSF for a similar type of uh, complaint and had withdrawn it. But it was essentially a lot of the same things that were laid out in this, this most recent suit. So... NASL had said USSF, the United States Soccer Federation, had moved the goalpost a couple years ago when when some of these new rules for Division One were were floated, um, 
I guess my real question is, what happened to that suit? Why was that withdrawn? And given that no positive outcome came from that scenario, how likely is it, using much of that same information, are we to get a result this time around? Well, I'll take uh, my question off the air. No, and that that's important because a lot of people ask this same question. And what the key aspect is, that lawsuit was never filed. The lawsuit was threatened. Uh, and, and it was threatened mainly in, in response to the, the proposed 2015 amendments to D1 standards that had been floated by U.S. soccer a year after they had amended the D1 standards in 2014. Uh, and so when, when, when NESL had expressed the desire to apply for D1 and all of a sudden the new amended D1 standards were, were, were proposed and floated throughout the U.S. soccer world in 2015, that's when the NESL got their dander up and Jeffrey Kessler shot off a, a, a letter threatening lawsuit if they did not, um, I don't know, I guess not implement those, those changes. U.S. soccer ultimately did not implement those 2015 changes. And I can talk about that a lot in a minute. So the NESL never filed a lawsuit. Uh, so there was nothing, there was no withdrawal. It never went through the system. Nothing ever happened. Um, the interesting thing is, and I brought this up on my podcast last week, you know, somebody probably got in the ear of us soccer because, you know, the, 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 the nature of those 2015 proposed amendments to, to D one standards uh, are outlined in great detail in the NESL's complaint this time. I don't know very many people, even those who are antagonistic, antagonistic to the NASL on some basic level, who, who look at those and say, mm, that would have been a bridge too far. It just, those seemed so arbitrary and so targeted to move the goalpost. A year after they had amended the D1 standards for the first time in 19 years, uh, that I, I, what clearly happened, some lawyer or lawyers got in the ear of U.S. soccer and said, you need you need to shell this because this because even I would be sitting here saying that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but they were never implemented and NESL never filed a lawsuit. Uh, so this is the first time they've actually sued the Federation or, or any subpart thereof, to my knowledge. Uh, and so this is all new. This is all this is all new ground to plow. How high is the? Uh, sorry, Aaron, did you have a follow up to that? No, I mean that's good clarification for me. That makes perfect sense. It still seems like NASL is picking and choosing when they want to play this card. And you go, you can go back to the inception of the NASL and talk about how they were given Great preference. Movie. I don't even know what I said. I, I feel like, did I say something wrong? Am I blacking out? No, no, you said Inception no, no, is a great movie, that's all. Inception, okay, you're right. All right. Um, hey, guys, welcome to the podcast. So, <laughs> episode 32 it is. Um, NSL didn't seem to mind when when arbitrary rules were created for the split between, you know, USL and NASL in 2011. Yeah, and that that's a that's a good point that you know Carl Krishnar who who lived through that and frankly so did I. I mean my, my soccer coverage was born during the off season of 09 to 2010 when the split occurred. I mean so that's you know a lot of people talk about how crazy these times are. I'm 
I'm like, man, I've, I've been through this in some way, shape, or form. Day job for there, you. Although there, although there was no lawsuit back then. Um, but you're right. That these 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 standards were at least, if not set up, then then at least negotiated in large part uh, to to allow the NESL to have a foothold in this new D2 rubric. That heretofore, that point was just, you know, whatever somebody wants to do. The NESL was able to ultimately meet those standards uh, in 2011. USL was not. They went down to D3. And the NESL was all too happy to operate in that in that manner until they didn't meet D2 standards anymore. And now, you know, that and that to me, that's one of the, the more outlandish parts of the complaint is that it, it says this this whole divisional situation whether or not u.s soccer has the right to do it is another is another question i've already talked about that but the notion that this whole thing was set up from the jump as a way to ultimately favor mls and ultimately usl to me is hogwash i mean the history of the situation the history of the leagues since 2009 and 2010 belies that interpretation um as a matter of fact uh, I don't think the fate that the fortunes of each of the, of the lower division leagues did not really shift until around 2013. There's a whole, whole host of things that happened around 15 and 14 that that, that caused uh, there to be a, a, these ships to sort of pass in the night again. One the one was up and then it went down. Um, but but the notion the notion that ESL is claiming that this thing this, this whole thing was was a was a, a farce from the start. Uh, is nonsense. I mean, they were all too happy to to reap the benefit of these standards when they could meet them and USL couldn't. And now that the, the shoe is on the other foot, now all of a sudden that the standards themselves are a problem. Now, whether there whether there's been changes that are targeted to one league or another, or whether the waiver process is applied inequitably, again, different subject. But the standards themselves and the erection of those standards, uh, the NHL was all too happy to be on board with that until they weren't. I really like this podcast. This is probably my favorite episode we've ever done. Um, you've thrown a lot of words out there that, one, like heretofore, I mean, we've never <laughs> said that before. We've literally, <laughs> it's never even occurred to us. I don't actually know what it means, so I'm going to take it as a sign of disrespect. <laughs> but then you also said hogwash, which I really, really appreciate as a word. That is the marriage of a person who went to law school with a person who grew up in eastern North Carolina. So I, I, can, I can cover all my bases. I'm loving every minute of it. And uh, I want to thank you again for coming on. And I had nothing to add other than I've been sitting here just grinning ear to ear, especially <laughs> then you topped it off uh, with erection. And I'm just like, you... <laughs> You yeah. are Matt Doyle right now. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had that one back. Sorry. Oh <laughs> KJ. Yeah. Why don't we shift gears real quick? Um, I do have maybe another question about the lawsuit, but um, just cause you mentioned that you just started covering the game around the, the rebirth of the NASL. So you seem to be a Jack of all trades, Neil, you know, um, lawyer, mediator, um, sports journalist, and also, according to your uh, Twitter profile, a film critic as well. So you wear many hats. Can you tell us just, you know, briefly, you don't have to give your whole life story, but um, kind of how you um, found yourself involved in so many things, and um, I guess maybe with a focus on how you came into sports journalism. Yeah. Um, 
Well, no one wants to hear how I became an attorney, so I'll just skip through that. <laughs> um, although I will say, becoming starting to review movies is something that I began in actually 2002 after I went into private practice. And more importantly, and I don't mind telling this, although it makes me sound like the worst dad in the world, it was after my son was born, and I realized that if I didn't do something, I would never be able to go see a movie ever again. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I reached an agreement with some papers, some local papers, and said, hey, you want a movie or critic? And they, I wrote a few reviews, and they saw I could string a couple of words together, and so then I could turn around and tell my family, hey, it's my job. I got to go. <laughs> so that's how that all started, and you know, it's sort of just gone from there, and it's, it's become a it's gone from a hobby to a glorified a part-time job, but, but nothing that pays very many bills. It's just something I enjoy. I enjoy doing quite a bit. Um, the the soccer aspect is a, a little more interesting, at least to me. And I, I this is a quip I've said a hundred times, so I'm sorry for people who've heard it before. In, in 2008, if you'd put a gun to my head and told and said, "I need to," you need to explain the offside rule. First, I would have said, you mean offsides, and then second, I couldn't have done it. <laughs> Nothing. Um, uh, Indie Week, or it used to be called the Independent Weekly, which is a, a, who I used to write for. I still write, I had written, I had been writing movie reviews for them since 2004. My editor at the time, a guy by the name of David Fellerath started a sports blog as a part of, of Indie Week's coverage, and I was covering basketball for them. And he had tried to get me to cover hockey, and I was like, I'm not interested. I don't have time. Then he said, do you want to cover soccer? And I'm like, not really interested. And he said, well, why don't you come to a Railhawks game with me? And I said, what the heck is a Railhawk? Uh, and so, and finally, about after the third or fourth time your editor asks, you, you say, okay, I'll go with you. So we went to some Carolina Railhawks games, and... I kind of got into it. Um, what I found was, and again, you know, my entry into the sport was not as a fan, which is, I guess, a little unique. It was from covering it. Uh, and what I found was that this was, it was, a, it, the, the, watching the sport was, was more fun than I'd ever given it credit for. Uh, and unlike covering ACC basketball, where I was a minnow in a big pond, you know, this was a, a team and a league that really valued coverage. Um, and so, recap, <laughs> it was the, it was, it was not on the main stadium at Wade Soccer Park. It was on the outside field too, because they were resurfacing the main field. And it was me and it was one other reporter for the News and Observer, the Raleigh News and Observer. We were sitting at a fold-out table on on the touchline. Uh, it wasn't as good as it is now. And it was the Railhawks against the Portland Timbers uh, on this little field with like a couple of hundred people there. Uh, and I remember after the game, we walked out to talk to Martin Rennie, who was the coach of the Railhawks, and he, he ended our interview by thanking us for being there. And I'm like... <laughs> Okay, I can do this. This is a way for me to, it was a way for me to sort of gain entry into not just a sport, but also a league and a team that I could felt like I was making a contribution for a niche market instead of writing about right. ACC basketball and for a hundred other people. So that, that's why I started initially. Then, as I said before, the, the USL TOA schism happened 
pretty quickly after that. And because the owners of the Railhawks at the time, who was Selby Wellman, was at the forefront of that split, uh, coverage from their point of view was kind of a valuable thing amongst followers of the league. Back then, it was pretty much Cardick and it was Brian Korsnap. That was it. Right. And and those guys were covering as best they could. Uh, but other than the traffic sports guys, Selby Wellman was kind of at the, at the, at the where there was a spearhead in that split. And so we were able to get a lot of information about it. And so that was my entry into this whole, this whole thing. And then it just all, everything went from there. So we're going to end with probably the most important question. I was thinking about this when you were, uh, when I was listening to your podcast yesterday, um, from your perspective, having worked within soccer, having been an attorney, who do you think wins in a fight to the death? Sunil Gulati or Ricardo uh, or uh, Rocco Camiso? <laughs> Are you <clears throat> legal or physical? Physical. <laughs> it's all obviously. Um, I think it'll be Rocco only because while Sunil is probably, you know, shifty like a, a light heavyweight. <laughs> lucha libre kind of type i would see rocco having like some heavies to come and invade the ring and hit hit sunil with a folding chair when the referee's back <laughs> and so i would give rocco the 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 head the leg up if we're talking a physical fight obviously within the the realm of pro wrestling which i've now entered which i've now added to my my repertoire in this, in this podcast well. I love it. I think that's the be- that's even better answer than I expected. Um, Neil, we can't thank you enough. Where can our listeners uh, find your work? Uh, the easy way is, is on Twitter at by Neil Morris. That's B Y N I N E I L M O R R I S. That's probably the best way to do it. And as far as my media outlet, it's W R A L SportsFan dot com, which is out of Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina. Brilliant. And I, I think all I speak for all the guys at Socktakes and we say there's nobody better that you can follow to cover who's covering this than, than Neil. So um, Neil and Karthik, two of the best out there. Um, so having said that, I want to thank Aaron and KJ. Do you guys have anything you want to plug? Any articles coming up, fools? No, nothing specific. You know, just a bunch of uh, random stuff like I normally do. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank Neil for coming on absolutely second what you just said napoon i do believe his podcast is second to none um i just got done listening to it for the second time well, right before well, this sec- second sure was- second to ours but yeah, yeah. no his is better no his no, is better i don't know i need i need i need a second source on that opinion but i have we, listened we, to we might be podcasts. top 50 <laughs> well, your yours is yours is more fun i make no i make no claim to being a fun <laughs> podcast mine is very very charlie rose I'm not here to yeah, have a good time. Yeah, I do listen to your podcast when I want to learn something about lower division soccer. Um, <laughs> I listen to our podcast when I want to feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all the time. Which is um, most of the time. <laughs> hey, guys. This is episode 32. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This was episode 32, a special podcast with Neil Morris. Uh, and this is your host, Nipun Chopra, signing off. Good night. <laughs>